Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist, and forte pianist Enrico Baiano. Maestro Baiano is considered one of the most complete and interesting interpreters on the ancient music scene. In his interpretative approach, historical stylistic rigor, expressive freedom, and great virtuosity are wisely combined. The French music magazine Le Monde de la Musique, reviewing a recording of Maestro Baiano, wrote the exceptional combination of wit and flair in compositions and performer make this one one of the most significant harpsichord recordings of the decade. And the German magazine Alte Musique Actuelle wrote an interpretation by a top caliber harpsichordist. That's what Enrico Baiano has demonstrated in his recording. Maestro Baiano is one of the major scholars and interpreters of the music of Girolamo Frescobaldi, Johann Jakob Froberger, Alessandro and Domenico Scarlatti, and Johann Sebastian Bach. Other authors to whom he dedicates in-depth study are the English virginalists, Henry Purcell, Louis Couperin, the masters of the Napoleon 17th century, like Ascanio Maione, Giovanni Maria Trabacci, of whom we will talk about later, uh, but also Jean-Philippe Rameau, Carl-Philippe Emanuel Bach, Franz Josef Haydn, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, uh, Muzio Clementi and Ludwig van Beethoven. Maestro Baiano has recorded various CDs, all of which have been enthusiastically received by critics and have won several awards. For the label uh, Lehman Arts, Maestro Baiano has recorded uh, The Well-Tempered Cravier by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, The Complete Toccatas and with the flutist Tommaso Rossi, The Sonatas for Traversiere and Keyboard. Maestro Baiano is also a prolific author, having written several books, among others A Method for the Harpsichord, which has been translated into five languages. Also a book on the sonatas by Domenico Scarlatti and another book on the Bach Well-Tempered Clavier. So it is with great pleasure that I would like to welcome you, uh, Maestro Enrico, to my radio show. Hello, hello everybody. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, thank you. And I would like also to thank our common friend and colleague Sandro Ivo Bartoli, who has created the connection between us. Yes. And um, and I also want to thank you personally for your willingness to do this interview in English. Well, it's my pleasure. I I love English and American culture, and I I love to speak English.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist, and forte pianist Enrico Baiano. And you have just listened to the Sonata in G Major K124 by Domenico Scarlatti, performed by our guest Enrico Baiano. While I was preparing for this interview and uh, I was doing some research on you, I came across one statement that you made earlier on, which uh, caught my attention. And uh, here it is. When you described the reason you became attracted to the harpsichord, you had the impression that the instrument was the continuation of your body and that it was playing through you. And I wonder if this impression happened only with the harpsichord or it also happened with uh, other instruments like the piano or the forte piano. It happens with other instruments. Um, I started as a boy, I started as a pianist, but actually with the harpsichord, it's something different. The first time I uh, actually touched that keyboard, I felt uh, that was different. And like if the mechanic of the instrument was just a continuation of my own skeleton. So um, it happens with the forte piano, with with uh, clavichord, with uh, but harpsichord. It's something more uh, more intimate with me. And so at 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 some point you decided that probably very early on in your life you decided that the harpsichord was going to be your main instrument. Yes, not that early because in Italy at that time you had first to complete your studies in piano or organ. And then I was also studying composition. Uh, but in my early 20s, I finally uh, got to uh, study harpsichord with the great Emilia Fadini. And from then on, I devoted myself entirely to to the harpsichord. So but other than the harpsichord, you're also a virtuoso on the clavichord as well as the forte piano. And we have yes. a couple of recordings that you that you did on the on the on a Silberman for the piano, which you will I, I understand you want to say something about it. But my question is, do you find each of these instruments are suited for a specific composer or each instrument gives you a different uh, approach to each composer? This is it that the same composition can uh, can give can give different um, expressions and different ideas on each instrument there are very few pieces uh, which really can't accommodate for instance the great the, the great uh, virtuosistic scarlatti sonatas of course uh, doesn't do, do not work very well on the clavichord or on the fortepiano, the Florentine fortepiano, for instance. But almost eighty um, percent of the keyboard literature of that period works very well on all instruments and gives different um, different ideas depending on which one uh, one is using. And so we also have two recordings that you picked for this particular podcast. One is a, Scar a Scarlatti Sonata and another one is the Prelude number no. 4 from the World Temperate Clavier that are played on a uh, forte piano made by Silberman, which I understand 
Bach had uh, a chance to play it. He probably owned one of those fortepianos. Yes, Silverman made fortepianos, which were copies of the Florentine fortepianos of Cristofori and Ferrini. His instrument, it's almost identical uh, as in the mechanic, uh, not in the external, exterior appearance. And uh, Bach was a very close friend of Gottfried Silbermann and spent a lot of time in his atelier, uh, in his workshop. And uh, in the list of instruments uh, made at his death uh, is listed also this instrument called Furnichte Clarsin. Uh, Furnichte means not painted, not decorated. And its, its value is 90 thalers, which was uh, three times the normal price of a harpsichord. So this means uh, it was something particularly uh, uh, expensive. And we know that these fortepianos were very expensive and they were bought by the aristocracy. For instance, Frederick the Great bought 15 or 19 fortepianos from Silbermann. And those instruments Bach played in his famous visit at Potsdam in 1747. So it's very likely that Bach owned uh, a Silbermann fortepiano. And for this reason, I used it in recording the well-tempered clavier. And since the Silberman is a very close copy to the Florentine fortepianos, which were very common in Spain and were loved by um, Queen Maria Barbara, mm. um, whom was uh, Scarlatti's pupil, uh, it's also a, a, a good idea to play also Scarlatti sonatas on a Florentine or a co or similar instrument for the piano. So if I understand well, there's no uh, original Silbermans anymore. There's only copies that are... There are two, two, two original Silbermans. They still exist. Um, mine, of course, is a copy because I would never, could, could never afford <laughs> to have an authentic one. <laughs> Probably those two are in some museums or... Uh, one, is, uh, one was owned by Alan Curtis. Uh, and just before his death, he had uh, sold it to, to somebody, I don't know who in particular. Another, it's in a, in a German museum. Thank you. 
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist, and fortepianist Enrico Baiano. And you have just listened to the sonata in D minor, K516 by Domenico Scarlatti, performed by our guest Enrico Baiano on a copy of a fortepiano by Gottfried Silberman. We, we spoke a little bit about the fortepiano Silberman, but in particular the recording that you sent me, which is the Bach Prelude and Fugue number four in C sharp minor from the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. You have some uh, insights about about this piece and uh, what, what, what is the reason why you send me in particular with all the preludes and fugues uh, this this particular one one reason is because it's one of the only two five parts fugues in the well-tempered clavier and then it's such a beautiful piece uh, which sounds so beautifully on the fortepiano the prelude is this magnificent um, arioso in uh, Siciliana style, but the fugue, it's very interesting because it's Bach's uh, rethinking of a Renaissance ricercare with three subjects. And it, it's interesting that Bach studied, thoroughly studied Frescobaldi, and actually the first subject of this fugue is the subject of the first Frescobaldi ricercare. And The third subject, it's um, a rethinking of the second subject of the ricercar chromatico post il credo from the Frescobaldi's Fiori Musicali. Um, So it's absolutely uh, enchanting, astounding how Bach takes uh, um, an old musical form and an old musical pros- way of composing and makes an entirely new and modern composition, which has also a, a very deep expression. And so it's a work of uh, of mind, of uh, of also of sentiment. It's absolutely a masterpiece uh, under all from all point of views.
This is Dress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Morasso. My guest today is Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist, and fortepianist Enrico Baiano. And you have just listened to the prelude and fugue number four in C-sharp minor from the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by our guest Enrico Baiano on a copy of a fortepiano by Gottfried Silberman. In your career, you also dedicated a lot of research and, and, and efforts to composers that were active during the late Renaissance and, and the Baroque period around your region, your hometown of Napoli. And this composer that are there today is still fairly obscure and not very well known, but some of their music, like the piece that we're going to listen during this hour, which is uh, the Canzona Francesa by Giovanni Maria Trabacci, is music that seems to have nothing to envy to the English versionalists like Bird or Gibbons. Yes, yes, because we know that Naples uh, from, from the late 16th century was one of the main capitals in Europe. All the arts and philosophy and f- flourished in that period. And at the, at the end of, 17, uh, of say 16th century, um, an authentic, authentic Neapolitan school develops after the influences of a Flemish school, of, of a French and Spanish school. This school stands out for the excellency of the technical uh, level. This music is really, sometimes it's really challenging really technically demanding, and also for the, the research in, uh, in the chromaticism, in the harmonic uh, developments, and also the, the richness in counterpoint and in new, um, new ways of treating the instruments, not only uh, the keyboard instruments. Um, we should not forget all the, 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 the circle of Gesualdo, Carlo Gesualdo da Venosa, mm-hmm. uh, who in the late, uh, in late um, at the middle 80s of the 16th century, traveled to Ferrara um, to get married and stayed there uh, two years with his musicians, and they learned a lot from the Ferrara musical environment, but also they brought uh, the Neapolitan experiences there. And it's interesting that uh, the the young Frescobaldi was there. And so um, there are several Neapolitan features in uh, Frescobaldi's music. There's a famous, uh, uh, famous paper of Willie Apple, uh, Neapolitan links between Cabezon and Frescobaldi, uh, which was the first to point out this importance, the, the importance of this school. Um, so I hope with this Canzona Francesa Quarta uh, of Trabaci to, to to give it just a glimpse into this uh, this paradise of treasures, which is this music. It's 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 very interesting. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna also look at some some of their music um, to learn it myself because I never I never listened to it before. It is there's a tendency to to concentrate on the British production and the English production. Yes, actually, the, the English and the Neapolitan in this period are strangely 
um, uh, close in the sense that both of them uh, um, have this quest for the, the possibilities of the instrument, both in technical sense uh, and in um, harmonic and chromatic research. It's a pity that the English experience finishes um, after uh, 40 years, more or less. While uh, Napolitans, um, there is one line stretching from Jean de Mac, Giovanni de Mac, and uh, Domenico Scarlatti. And they seem to have this, this very improvisatory character as well. There was an, um, a French uh, a gentleman who arrived in Naples after, in his Tour d'Italie, Le Grand Tour, arrived in Naples in 1632. And he writes that the uh, the Neapolitan music, it's very different from Roman music because it, it's um, full of uh, thousand pauses, themes and reprises. And um, it's not very pleasant indeed, but uh, very interesting from its continuously changing mood. Uh, and now singing very loud and now very softly. And, um, and passing from um, great speed to relaxed tempos and for a lot of surprises. And he said that the Neapolitan music is some style, it's a, something between the French air and the Sicilian air. That's very strange. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he says that all Neapolitans are a bit mad and they are proud of it. Jean-Jacques Bouchard says that Neapolitans are very, very, uh, their character is very similar to those of uh, the people of Gascogne. Um, and he never saw um, two uh, so resemblant the uh, characters from your point of view with who, was he right yes yes and when he says that the neapolitan style neapolitan spirit it's not that cheerful indeed he focuses exactly the spirit of the uh, of the southern um, southern soul because everything thinks that we Mediterranean peoples, we are very, uh, very cheerful. This is only a surface because actually we are uh, tendent to depression. We tend to depression. We are tendent to melancholy and hypochondria. And some exaggerated expressions are mm, just a, um, a trick to uh, to come over this, overcome this. It's interesting because a few days ago I came across a statement by the great Toto that is not very well known in the United States, but of course in Italy is a major, uh, major figure. And he, he was, I mean, you would think that a person like a comedian would be happy all his life, but instead he was mentioning that the happiness it was, he only had very few glimpses of happiness and that the rest of his life was always sort of the, the way you describe it. Yes, N Napolitan people are usually depressed <laughs> and always complaining and always um, always uh, growling against something.
This is dress rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist, and forte pianist Enrico Baiano. And you have just listened to the Canzona Francesa Quarta by Giovanni Maria Trabaci, performed by our guest Enrico Baiano. If we make a little bit of a jump now from, from, from the Renaissance and Baroque to, uh, to the more modern and contemporary, there seems to be a resurgence of, of you know, the use of the harpsichord and some composers uh, took it back into, into their own repertoire. And um, I recall that in some interviews you, you said that you, were, you, you find the music of Georgi Ligeti very interesting to listen to. Actually a composer that made the harpsichord the play as it as it should sound uh, or make it sound as it should be and uh, but somehow you haven't recorded any any modern or contemporary music is it because you always prefer to go back to to the historical composers or you prefer just to listen to contemporary music rather than than perform it I would like to record some contemporary music. I actually also bought a Renaissance harpsichord. Uh, actually, they were disposing of it, so I had it for free. Then I have to have it restored. And I played Ligeti, Petrassi, who also wrote exceptionally good music. And I also played um, Vincent Persichetti and the concerto of Manuel De Faglia. Uh, was planning to play uh, to play the concert champêtre uh, of Poulenc, um, and I played uh, Martinu, and I also played, for instance, the, the third movement of Prokofiev's seventh sonata, which works very well on a Renaissance harpsichord, but was never able. Um, to record this music. And then since uh, I asked uh, to play early music with harpsichord, classical music with fortepiano and clavichord and write books and uh, articles and research, then the time is limited. <laughs> also, yeah. there is also life which uh, with these uh, problems and complications. So maybe one, one day I will finally be able to record these musics.
This is Stress Rehearsal on KBFG Seattle, and I'm your host, Lorenzo Marasso. My guest today is Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist, and fortepianist Enrico Baiano. And you have just listened to a live recording of a tango called Nibla Proteina by Astro Piazzolla in a transcription for two harpsichord performed by our guest Enrico Baiano with harpsichordist Apo Akinen. Actually, now I, I have a, an, another quick question, which is about the tuning of the harpsichord. And uh, um, I wonder what's your opinion about using a, a different tuning than, than 440. Is it because the instrument cannot, or, or, or most historical instruments cannot go as high, or is it a purely a choice? Well, actually, the Silberman Fortepiano it's, uh, would be at 440. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a, um, an, a standard pitch at the time. Even in Germany, uh, there were organs in different towns which were uh, even one fifth far away from one each other, one from each other. Uh, so now nowadays it's a convention that we play this music more or less at 4:15, but it's not. Um, mandatory. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, playing and recording the well-tempered clavier with three instruments, of course, the three instruments stay at the same pitch because of, of, um, this is uh, obvious. Yeah. Um, the interesting is that uh, in the in the frontispiece of the manuscript of well-tempered clavier, um, there is a flourish, which is not really a flourish, but um, Uh, it's a, 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 a um, temperament scheme uh, because uh, well tempered clavier does not means does not mean equal temperament um, this is an idea that spitta um, put on for the first time but actually equal temperament wasn't appreciated uh, until the end of the uh, 18th century Um, so that flourish is a scheme of um, a way of tempering the the diff the, the uh, 12th, 5th of the circle in different ways. So to have all um, keys possible, but uh, each one slightly different from each other. If a piano isn't at 440, I can hear it. And if a harpsichord isn't at 415, I hear I can hear it. And I'm this, but on the harpsichord, it happens. Uh, there are Italian harpsichords which are at 392 or 380, which I like because it's very low. I, I like it. And also, uh, Venetian music of the late 16th century was at 470 for instance. Uh, so uh, um, since I've been studying early music, I, I've lost any orientation in, <laughs> in listening. Uh, I never know. I never know really if that's a C or C sharp or B. <laughs> well, when I, when I listen to modern orchestras, uh, it's quite clear because yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a memory of, of it. But otherwise, I'm always I've always a little doubt about semitones. Is this affecting at, at all the, the the performance when you play by memory, or actually no, play, playing no. by memory would would have been? I noticed that sometimes you play by memory, which 
was it a practice an historical practice no they never they seem never they seem never played by memory i usually play by memory uh, sometime there are times when i maybe i feel a bit tired so i don't want to take a chance to take risks uh, so i keep my score there uh, and it, it Sometimes I've been criticized because I was playing by memory. Uh, but playing by memory helps you to improvise, which is very important in this music. Um, so I, I do as I feel on the moment. I want to thank you for, for all the time that, uh, that you dedicated to this program. Thank you. It was great pleasure for me. Very much pleasure for me too. I hope you have enjoyed meeting my guest, Italian harpsichordist, clavichordist and fortepianist Enrico Baiano, and enjoy listening to some of his recordings. For now, I leave you with one final piece, which is the second movement, a larghetto incantabile, from the sonata number no. three in E minor by Pietro Domenico Paradisi, performed by our guest Enrico Baiano. And with this, I look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Dress Rehearsal here on KBFG Seattle.
You are listening to KBFGLP 107.3 FM in Seattle. Colon is two small dots. You put them over or under each other as you like it. Colon. And now I shall read an old story to illustrate phonetic punctuation. In the open window, there suddenly came light. Beautiful Eleanor sat alone dreaming of but one thing. Two years had passed since she met Sir Henry. She could still remember the unhappy evening when her father had thrown him out. They had been sitting in the park, and Henry had said, Darling, is this the first time you have loved? And she had answered, Yes. But it is so wonderful that I hope it will not be the last. Suddenly she heard a well-known sound. It was he. In two strides he was near her, embraced, kissed, and caressed her. Henry! What is love? She asked. He answered, well, I cannot live without. She asked, where have all your thoughts been in this while? And he answered, with thee, O maiden. Oh, I'm sorry, this should have been a... Suddenly he was gone. All she heard was the well-known sound of his retreating horse. You're listening to KBFG 107.3 FM, and this is Lorenzo Morasso. Dress Rehearsal is a weekly classical music show that brings you exciting live interviews with classical composers and performers. Join me every Friday morning at 8 a.m. and every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. here on KBFG Seattle. <laughs> 